You're listening to episode number 75 of The Green Elephant in the Room. Welcome, this is your host, Eco Rico, and today we are looking at balancing present pain and future gain by finding win-win solutions for our climate and ecological changes. You want to know the biggest obstacle to dealing with climate change is? Simple, time. It will take decades before the carbon dioxide we admit now begins to have its full effect on the planet's climate. And by the same token, it will take decades before we are able to enjoy the positive climate effects of reducing carbon dioxide emissions now. Even if we could stop emitting all CO2 today, there's already future warming that's baked into the system thanks to the past and present emissions. But we will feel the economic effects of either admitting or restricting CO2 right now in real time. While we can argue about the relative cost of reducing CO2 emissions now, just as we can argue about the economic effects of climate change in the future, it should be clear that any attempt to restrict CO2 emissions enough to make a dent in future climate change will cause some present-day economic pain. The global economy is still so dependent on relatively inexpensive fossil fuels that a quick transition to renewable resources would likely be costly in the short term. What that means, in effect, is that climate policy asks the present to sacrifice for the future. Human beings tend not to be very good at that kind of planning, even when their own future selves stand to benefit. A study this year found that just 10% of Americans have saved enough in a 401k or individual retirement account to put themselves on a track to retire. When it comes to climate change, the worst effects will be felt years after many people today are long gone. From a self-centered perspective, that makes strict climate policy like saving for retirement you know you will never live to see. So it shouldn't be a surprise that a new study in Nature Climate Change confirms the fact that the kind of long-term cooperation demanded by effective climate policy is going to be even more challenging than we thought. Fortunately, short-term incentives for fighting climate change do exist. It takes decades to benefit from reductions in carbon dioxide emissions, but phasing out fossil fuels like coal and oil can bring immediate improvements in air pollution. And air pollution has turned out to be even more dangerous than experts thought, with the World Health Organization last week declaring that bad air is a leading environmental cause of cancer comparable to secondhand smoke. The Nature Climate Change study also underscores why win-win climate policies like innovative investments that can lead directly to cheap, clean energy rather than policies that make dirty energy more expensive are likely the most effective ones. Barring a species-wide personality change, few of us will be willing to endure present pain so that our grandchildren won't have to endure an unlivable climate. We're likely better off tailoring solutions that work with our selfishness and brief attention span rather than hoping we suddenly become better, more far-sighted people. Ooh.
There has been a shift in strategy concerning climate denial. Denial has been a successful line of attack for the oil giants, major polluters, and the politicians that support them for decades. With the overwhelming evidence of our changing climate to disprove that the world is warming, even oil companies now have net zero pledges. And climate denier is a much dirtier word than it used to be. Oil and gas executives are no longer straight up denying that the climate is changing. Instead, the message becomes one that ultimately slow walks real climate action, giving excuses like it's too expensive to address or it's too late to do anything. The danger now consists of those who set out to postpone the difficult measures aimed at slowing down the effects of our overheated atmosphere. They are now known as climate delayers. Climate delayers are people, corporations, and governments who want to impede a transition that cannot be avoided any longer. Language around climate solutions is particularly susceptible to this treatment, especially as polluting companies invest in strategies and tactics to present themselves as part of the solution to climate change when clearly as they continue to prioritize drilling for global warming fuels, they are not. Considering we are now experiencing the hottest temperatures in the last 120,000 years, the fossil fuel industry is rushing to make multi-billion dollar investments in new infrastructure to extract oil, natural gas, and coal from some of the dirtiest and highest risk sources on the globe. Their position is fossil fuels are an inevitable fact of modern life and industry encourages this perception that everyone is complicit in climate change by using its products and is therefore too reliant on them to ever transition away. Lawmakers can no longer simply stick their head in the sand and pretend nothing is happening. Instead, they're trying to use woke in the hopes of attacking climate policy without seeming like they're out of touch with the science or refusing to acknowledge how the world is changing. It's all part of Republicans' long game of denying climate action while it gets hotter and hotter outside. I will tell you, there is no joy in being right about something so terrifying. Today, 70 to 75% of self-identified Democrats and liberals believe humans are changing the climate. A level that has remained stable or risen slightly over the past decade. In sharp contrast, Republicans have overwhelmingly chose to reject the scientific consensus. In some regions, only about 20% of self-identified Republicans accept the science. Equally significant has been the shift in emotional intensity. Climate change used to be something that almost everyone said they cared about. The problem is, they just don't care enough. When Americans are asked to rank their political concerns in order of priority, climate change would reliably come in way down the list. The culture war intensity is the worst news of all, because when you challenge a person's position on an issue core to his or her identity, facts and arguments are seen as little more than further attacks, easily deflected. The layers are gaining traction by making climate about economics. Climate action will destroy capitalism, they claim, killing jobs, 
and sending prices soaring. Climate change is a Trojan horse designed to abolish capitalism and replace it with some kind of eco-socialism. To reverse this would require making a persuasive case that the real solutions to the climate crisis are also our best hope of building a much more enlightened economic system. One that closes deep inequalities, strengthens and transforms the public sphere, generates plentiful, dignified work, and radically reigns in corporate power. If we are not on a radically different energy path by the end of this decade, we are in for a world of pain. The fact that the Earth's atmosphere cannot safely absorb the amount of carbon we are pumping into it is a symptom of a much larger crisis, one born on the central fiction on which our economic model is based, that nature is limitless, that we will always be able to find more of what we need, and that if something runs out it can be seamlessly replaced by another resource that we can endlessly extract. But it's not just the atmosphere that we have exploited beyond its capacity to recover. We are doing the same to the oceans, to fresh water, to topsoil, and to biodiversity. This expansionist, extractive mindset, which has so long governed our relationship to nature, is what the climate crisis calls into question so fundamentally. The abundance of scientific research showing that we have pushed nature beyond its limits does not just demand green products and market-based solutions. It demands a new civilizational paradigm, one grounded not in dominance over nature but in respect for natural cycles of renewal and acutely sensitive to natural limits, including the limits of human intelligence. What follows is a quick and dirty look at what a serious climate agenda would mean in the following six arenas. Public infrastructure, economic planning, corporate regulation, international trade, and consumption and taxation. After years of recycling, carbon offsetting, and light bulb changing, it is obvious that individual action will never be an adequate response to the climate crisis. Climate change is a collective problem and it demands collective action. One of the key areas in which this collective action must take place is big ticket investments designed to reduce our emissions on a mass scale. That means subways, streetcars, and light rail systems that are not only everywhere, but affordable to everyone. Energy efficient, affordable housing along those transit lines, smart electrical grids carrying renewable energy, and a massive research effort to ensure that we are using the best methods possible. But the gravity of the climate crisis cries out for a radically new conception of realism as well as a very different understanding of limits. Government budget deficits are not nearly as dangerous as the deficits we have created in vital and complex natural systems. Number two, remembering how to plan. A serious response to the climate threat involves recovering an art that has been relentlessly vilified during these decades of market fundamentalism, planning. Lots and lots of planning. And it's not just at the national and international levels. Every community in the world needs a plan for how it's going to transition away from fossil fuels with what is sometimes called energy descent action plans. 
In cities and towns that have taken this responsibility seriously, the process has opened up rare spaces for participatory democracy, with neighbors packing meetings at city halls to share ideas on how to reorganize their communities to lower emissions and build resilience for the tough times ahead. That means bringing back the idea of planning our economies based on collective priorities rather than corporate profitability. Giving laid-off employees of car plants and coal mines the tools and resources to create jobs. Agriculture, too, will have to have a revival in planning if we are to address the triple crisis of soil erosion, extreme weather, and dependence on fossil fuel inputs. Visionary leaders and farmers have been calling for a 50-year farm bill. That's the length of time it will take to conduct the research and put the infrastructure in place to replace many soil-depleting annual grain crops grown in monocultures with perennial crops grown in polycultures. Since perennials don't need to be replanted every year, their long roots do a much better job of storing scarce water, holding soil in place, and sequestering carbon. Polycultures are also less vulnerable to pests and being wiped out by extreme weather. Another bonus, this type of farming is much more labor-intensive than industrial agriculture, which means that farming can once again be a substantial source of employment. Number three, reining in corporations. A key piece of the planning we must undertake involves the rapid re-regulation of the corporate sector. Much can be done with incentives, subsidies for renewable energy and responsible land stewardship, for example. But we are also going to have to get back into the habit of barring outright dangerous and destructive behavior. That means getting in the way of corporations on multiple fronts, from imposing strict caps on the amount of carbon corporations can emit, to banning new coal-fired power plants, to cracking down on industrial feedlots, to shutting down dirty energy extraction projects like the Alberta tar sands, which are probably the dirtiest fuels on earth. As one scientist said, if we drill the tar sands, it'll be game over for the planet. Number four, relocalizing production. If strictly regulating corporations to respond to climate change sounds somewhat radical, it's because since the beginning of the 1980s, it has been an article of faith that the role of government is to get out of the way of the corporate sector, and nowhere more so than in the realm of international trade. The devastating impacts of free trade on manufacturing, local businesses, and farming are well known, but perhaps the atmosphere has taken the hardest hit of all. The cargo ships, jumbo jets, and the heavy trucks that haul raw resources and finished products across the globe devour fossil fuels and spew greenhouse gases. And the cheap goods being produced and made to be replaced, almost never fixed, are consuming a huge range of other non-renewable sources while producing far more waste than could be safely absorbed. This model is so wasteful, in fact, that it cancels out the modest gains that have been made in reducing emissions many times over. In an economy organized to respect natural limits, the use of energy-intensive long-haul transport would need to be rationed, reserved for those cases where goods cannot be produced locally or where local production is more carbon-intensive. 
For example, growing food in greenhouses in cold parts of the United States is often more energy intensive than growing it in the South and shipping it by light rail. Climate change does not demand an end to trade, but it does demand an end to the reckless form of free trade that governs every bilateral trade agreement as well as the World Trade Organization. This is actually more good news for unemployed workers, for farmers unable to compete with cheap imports, for communities that have seen their manufacturers move offshore and their local businesses replaced with big box stores. But the challenge this poses to the capitalist project should not be underestimated. It represents a reversal of the 40-year trend of removing every possible limit on corporate power. Number five, ending the cult of shopping. The past four decades of free trade, deregulation, and privatization were not only the result of greedy people wanting greater corporate profits, it has also been driven by a fatal flaw in our current economic model. That is, a drop in production is, by definition, a crisis, a recession, or, if deep enough, a depression, with all the desperation and hardship that these words imply. This growth imperative is why conventional economists reliably approach the climate crisis by asking the question, how can we reduce emissions while maintaining robust GDP growth? The bottom line is that an ecological crisis that has its roots in the overconsumption of natural resources must be addressed not just by improving the efficiency of our economies, but by reducing the amount of material stuff we produce and consume. Yet, that very idea is an abomination to the large corporations that dominate the global economy, which are controlled by footloose investors who demand ever greater profits year after year. We are therefore caught in the unsustainable predicament of trash the system or crash the planet. The way out is to embrace a managed transition to another economic paradigm using all the tools of planning discussed before. Growth would be reserved for parts of the world still pulling themselves out of poverty. Meanwhile, in the industrialized world, those sectors that are not governed by the drive for increased yearly profits, for example, the public sector, co-ops, local businesses, nonprofits, would expand their share of overall economic activity as would those sectors with minimal ecological impacts, such as teaching and the caregiving professions. A great many jobs could be created this way. And finally, number six, taxing the filthy rich. About now, a sensible listener would be asking, how on earth are we gonna pay for all this? The old answer would have been easy. We will grow our way out of it. Indeed, one of the major benefits of a growth-based economy for elites is it allows them to constantly defer demands for social justice, claiming that if we keep growing the pie, eventually there will be enough for everyone. That was always a lie, as the current inequality crisis reveals, but in a world hitting multiple ecological limits, it is a non-starter. So the only way to finance a meaningful response to the ecological crisis is to go where the money is. That means taxing carbon as well as financial speculation 
It means increasing taxes on corporations and the wealthy, cutting bloated military budgets, and eliminating absurd subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And governments will have to coordinate the responses so that corporations will have nowhere to hide. Most of all, however, we need to go after the profits of the corporations most responsible for getting us into this mess. The top five oil companies made $35 billion in profits in the last quarter of 2022. Numbers like that are almost inconceivable, but that's the point. ExxonMobil alone can clear $10 billion in profits in a single quarter. For years, these companies have pledged to use their profits to invest in a shift to renewable energy. But according to a study by the Center of American Progress, just 4% of the Big Five's $200 billion in combined profits went to renewable and alternative energy ventures. Instead, they continue to pour their profits into shareholders' pockets, outrageous executive pay, and new technologies designed to extract even dirtier and more dangerous fossil fuels. Plenty of money has also gone to pay lobbyists to beat back every piece of climate legislation that has reared its head. Just as tobacco companies have been obliged to pay the cost of helping people to quit smoking, and BP had to pay for the cleanup in the Gulf of Mexico, it is high time for the polluter pays principle to be applied to climate change. Beyond higher taxes on polluters, governments will have to negotiate much higher royalty fees so that less fossil fuel extraction would raise more public revenue to pay for the shift in our post-carbon future, as well as the steep costs of climate change already upon us. Since corporations can be counted on to resist any new rules that cut into their profits, nationalization, the greatest free market taboo of all, cannot be off the table. So let's summarize. Responding to climate change requires that we break every rule in the free market playbook and that we do so with great urgency. We will need to rebuild the public sphere, reverse privatization, relocalize large parts of our economies, scale back on overconsumption, and bring back long-term planning. Heavily regulate and tax corporations, maybe even nationalize some of them, cut military spending, and recognize our debts to the global south. Of course, none of this has a hope in hell of happening unless it's accompanied by a massive, broad-based effort to radically reduce the influence that corporations have over our political process. That means at a minimum, publicly funded elections and stripping corporations of their status as people under the law. In short, climate change supercharges the pre-existing case for virtually every progressive demand on the books, binding them together in a coherent agenda based on a clear scientific imperative. And fossil fuel companies are not the only economic interests strongly motivated to undermine climate science. If solving this crisis requires the kinds of profound changes to the economic order that I have outlined, then every major corporation benefiting from loose regulations, free trade, and low taxes has reason to fear. With so much at stake, it should come as little surprise that climate delayers are, on the whole, 
those most invested in our highly unequal and dysfunctional economic status quo. One of the most interesting findings of the studies on climate perceptions is the clear connection between a refusal to accept the science of climate change and social and economic privilege. Overwhelmingly, climate delayers are not only conservative, but also white and male, a group with higher than average incomes. And they are more likely than other adults to be highly confident in their views, no matter how demonstrably false. Much of this may sound like pie-in-the-sky, hippy-dippy, crazy talk. In fact, what we have delivered here is a cleared-eye view of what truly radical climate policy would mean. As we are recording this, the Earth this week in early July set and then repeatedly broke the hottest temperatures ever recorded on the planet. Last month was the hottest June ever recorded. And climate scientists now think that 2023 could be the warmest year on record. It's frightening to see how fast the planet is warming. More than a century of burning coal, oil, and gas has caught up to us. So even though the planet has broken the highest global temperature record three times in one week, and no human has ever seen it hotter, we are still treating climate change like a future emergency. The time for incremental steps has passed. World leaders can't ignore or hope to avoid the pain of global warming now that it's here. They have an obligation to act. Will this be the year that we wake it and shake it? In all honesty, we think not. But given the trajectory of worsening and multiple climate catastrophes globally, as odd as it sounds, it may give us hope for the future. This land is your land. This land is to the ends of shaping our economies, societies, and political systems to meet the challenges of our rapidly changing ecosphere, the green elephant has two resources we humbly offer. First, we offer a series of podcast episodes, 62 through 66, that outline the hows, the ways, and the whys this massive restructuring could be accomplished. And second, as stated, individual actions are not enough. Only by collectively joining others and acting through organizing, through campaigning, we've come to realize that we aren't powerless at all. We aren't alone. I've seen firsthand how anything can change when we come together, form movements, and refuse to accept that the world will always be this way. We can find a community that can hold us when we need to be held and stand beside us in action. To that point, the Green Elephant has designed a comprehensive online encyclopedia of eco-solutions called A Call to Act. It is a well-organized, thoughtfully laid-out resource of hundreds of climate groups to join and eco-action activities to be taken. We have links in the show notes for both.